Hello, hello. Welcome to a brand new episode of the SaaS Sprints podcast, the podcast for content marketers in SaaS. And I'm your host, Yag. In today's episode, we are going to discuss content marketing frameworks and the role of AI in content marketing. With us today, we have Ryan Law, one of the best when it comes to the content business, someone who has worked with a whole heap of startups and enterprises, and is currently the CMO at Animals, one of my all-time favorite content marketing agencies. Oh, and by the way, Ryan also enjoys reviewing beers, designing t-shirts, and tending bars. All right, hey-ho, let's go. Ryan, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you so much for having me, Yarg. And uh, yeah, been a little while since I designed a t-shirt, but that was that was how I made my first dollar on the internet was t-shirt business. So yeah. Are you still tending bars on the side? <laughs> no, less, more of a customer, less of a bartender these days, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Absolutely. It makes sense. You know, let's kick off with this. You know, most of the content that you write for animals are actually very thoughtfully written. They speak to the audience so well and spark real conversations. And this is in stark contrast to, say, the listicles, the keyword focused landing pages and lead magnets that you typically see with SaaS companies. So what do you think makes B2B brands produce very shallow content and how can they reverse the damage that they're actually making there? Oh, big question. I love that. I think a lot of content marketing for most companies is just synonymous with SEO and like with very good reasons as well, because the big function of content marketing is predictable compounding growth. Most yeah. companies, you know, they start with like either they get their early customers from their network or they invest heavily in paid lead gen. And those are things that all have a limit to them or, you know, there's diminishing returns from paid search. So a lot of people end up doing content and particularly SEO because you can see that traffic graph go up and up month over month. You know, you pay once for a blog post and you end up getting more and more results from it. So through that lens, like SEO in particular is a great thing to do. But exactly as you say, it's, well, it's so competitive today. It's so hard. And a lot of the content that functionally ranks for those keywords that maybe drives a ton of traffic yeah. is... It's, you know, pretty much the same as what other companies are publishing. It doesn't actually reach the right audience in terms of like the decision makers and people that have budget. And it's increasingly like a little bit of a vanity metric, I think. Yeah. So yeah, a lot of what we do at Animals, a lot of what we do with our customers is trying to help them move beyond just traffic generation for traffic generation's sake and actually write content that solves problems for people and actually resonates with CEOs and execs and decision makers and that kind of thing. Right. So how difficult has it been to convince that story? Because, you know, you're always measured against a particular metric. Is it like a long convincing that it takes before companies buy into it or are more and more companies coming around? I think more and more companies are coming around, but it is it's still hard, definitely. And the thing about SEO is that it offers certainty. Like you can see numbers go up. And at yeah. a big company, particularly when you've got to report to your manager and your boss or whatever, having concrete numbers that say, you know what, we increased traffic by 10% this month. That's a really powerful story to tell, even yeah. if that 10% increase was not the right people. So you're always fighting against this kind of concrete data. Whereas yeah. stuff like, you know, thought leadership, as we call it, some of this more opinionated, nebulous, personal content, you get peaks and troughs in the traffic. It's quite an ugly traffic graph. 
it takes a lot of energy to get going sometimes. Yeah. And unless you stick with it for a long time, it doesn't always pay off. So it, it's definitely hard getting over that initial step. But thankfully, I think enough companies have seen it work and have done a good enough job building that kind of content for themselves that more and more companies, SaaS companies are waking up to it and saying, you know what, we should be doing that. We should have our founders on Twitter and we should be writing essays and opinionated content and publishing research and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Makes sense. So what's the antidote to, you know, the commoditization that we are seeing in content, especially in today's age of generative AI? More and more people are saying that let's produce 20 blogs a month. And I'm like, why? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Especially because you can literally do that in the click of a couple of buttons through freemium yeah. SaaS products, thanks to generative AI. I think something that's very safe for companies to do now and add into the content they're already creating that will also build for this post-AI world is just yeah. bringing people into their content more, real people, lived experiences, stories, and opinions. Instead of publishing some kind of utilitarian, you know, how-to document or a what-is post like, what is CRM? Maybe tell <laughs> right. the story of a, a customer that actually bought your CRM and the process they went through and the challenges they had and the problems you solved. I think interviewing and anchoring that content, sharing that information through the lens of somebody, a real person that solved that problem is going to be far more like interesting and credible and differentiated from all this kind of Wikipedia-esque content that a lot of companies publish at the moment. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And it doesn't make sense at all, right? So as you said, it's, it's going to be functional, it's going to be ranking. But more often than not, when you look at the top five ranking posts, it's almost the same topic, the same regurgitated content in different styles. But yeah, it doesn't help anybody. So yeah, makes sense. And uh, when you look at the same thing from, say, for example, a thought leadership angle, these days, especially, it is getting a lot of bad rap. And when I look at some of your content specifically, some of your best content is actually thought leadership pieces. In fact, uh, I even saw that you have a course on how to create thought leadership content on Podia, which has amazing reviews. So if you don't mind, would you like to take us through, say, your four-step framework of how you go about creating that content? Yeah, I certainly will try. A lot of people, they you're right, thought leadership does get a bad rep for a host of reasons. I think some people conflate it with being really obnoxious actually there's like a subset of like company founders that their entire shtick is basically you know leveling criticism at people and saying how broken and ruined and everything is yeah and another type of criticism is that you know thought leadership is an end state it's not like a type of content you can create mm. you want to be known for interesting novel ideas you want people to care about your company you want to be saying something different to other companies and to those criticisms i would basically say like you can be a thought leader without being mean there's plenty of ways to add value and share interesting ideas thought leadership is an end state but there are certain types of content that are more conducive to you reaching that end state so one of the things I think a lot about when we talk to a company founder or you know a CMO or something, they want to get started with thought leadership is basically, what is your reason for existing? Like you as a company, to get to the point you already are, you've made lots and lots of interesting decisions. You've solved loads of hard problems. You've agreed to do things and said no to other things just to reach the point you're currently at. Why did you do those things? Because in every vaguely successful company story, there's loads of interesting decisions and lessons learned that they should be talking about. And that's a great starting point for thought leadership. You know, What are the problems you've solved? What are the opinions you see in the marketplace that you don't agree with and maybe you want to challenge? And 
yeah, in some cases, what are the opinions you do agree with, but you want to add more context to? Or what is happening in your industry and how can you help other people understand those trends so they can learn from it and build upon it themselves? I think that's a great starting point, you know, like trying to be systematic about how you have good, interesting, helpful ideas. Right, right. And, you know, of the four points that you specifically speak about, one of my favorite is responding to existing ideas. So when you talk about responding to an existing idea, what are we getting at? Are we, when you, now you expanded on the point saying that it's not about just criticizing. So is it about a way of doing something versus a better way of doing something? Or what does that actually mean from an execution standpoint? So one of the things I've found, like getting started with thought leadership content is actually really, really hard. And it's really intimidating because you're putting yourself out there. You're putting your opinions out there. You can't hide behind the brand. And you always feel this pressure to have like a really good idea. And that's a really hard thing to do. You know, we're not all like, we're not all as smart as April Dunford, for example. I know you just talked to her. Yeah. Um, so I thought a really good way of bridging that gap and actually getting confident sharing opinions and ideas is to find an idea that somebody else has shared that you agree yeah. with, but then find some additional value add to tack onto that. Right. So maybe somebody shares an opinion about, you know, AI. You can agree with that and you can say, let's take that further. Here's a particular workflow we've used that we found really interesting. Or maybe here's my idea about why this happened in the first place. And that's really good because it gets over that fear of having, you know, that original genius idea because you're already tacking onto an existing proven successful idea that somebody else has had. And you're also, in some ways, boosting the distribution of that idea because if you are responding to something, then there's already people that know about it, that care about it. You kind of have built-in distribution for that idea. So I think if you want to get started with, you know, non-SEO content, that is a great starting point. Pick ideas that other people have that you like and add context and elaboration and detail to those ideas yourself. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. One of the things that I often like to do is, uh, you know, I test out putting out an idea as a LinkedIn post and see how people are reacting to it. And that gives me an idea whether this is resonating or not. And then maybe go on and expand on a blog based on what's working and what's not. So, yeah. And I've seen you doing that as well. Yeah, 100%. In fact, um, what the best performing post we published this year was about predictions about how SEO is going to change on the back of AI, which you know, we'll obviously yeah. talk about. Uh, and the reason I wrote that was because I did a LinkedIn post that got like 150,000 views. And I thought, okay, cool. People obviously care about this. It's worth the effort of elaborating on it and turning it into a full blog post. So I love that like feedback loop you can build with social. Exactly, exactly. And also talking about, you know, sharing those personal experiences when you spoke about, uh, you know, interviewing people and asking, why did you take certain decisions? Have you come across situations where, you know, when they translate that into that kind of content, it becomes more of meme content than what's in it for the reader jobs to be done mindset. So do you have an internal framework once you have that story? Yeah, you always constantly have to remind yourself or ask yourself the question, is this helping somebody? That is the fundamental premise of thought leadership. It's very easy to get wrapped up in this idea of like, how can I elevate my personal brand? How can I elevate the company brand? But none of that matters compared to solving problems for people. That is the point of all content marketing in any format has to be useful, has to provide something for some other human being in the world. So just using that as your North Star and saying like, you know, I had this amazing experience, 
but therefore, what can somebody else learn from this? How can they emulate this success? That is the yeah. most important part of that process, I think. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. And when you look at, uh, you know, the polar opposite of, say, writing an original thought leadership piece is making AI write on your behalf. I mean, using AI is not bad. We are going to get around it. AI is going to get better. And uh, I particularly enjoyed reading your uh, blog post, you know, where you spoke about the six risks of AI content, which we also shared on our uh, LinkedIn newsletter, The Sprinter. So what do you suggest? How can our content marketers today still leverage the power of AI and go past the functional but forgettable content? Oh, I love that. And I think this is still, you know, Wild West days. There's still a lot to be learned here. But obviously, the first order use case, the most immediate thing that lots of people are doing is hitting that big red generate button and doing entire articles. And we've talked about this it's yeah. probably a bit of a losing proposition, I think, because if you can make a blog post that easily, so can everybody else. Like there is no exactly. value add, there's no differentiation. But there are plenty of ways you can use that same generative AI model as an input into this broader creative process to make stuff that is incredible and original and unique. So some of the things we're doing, uh, you know, create a research primer. One of the hardest things in content marketing is getting up to speed on a new topic that you know nothing about. There's lots of like laborious research and synthesis of content to understand it. Generative AI is so good at doing that on your behalf. You can ask it about topics. You can then ask elaborating questions if you get stuck and you don't understand something. And generally, it's a really good way of getting up to speed to like a basic level on almost any topics. That's super fun. Something I've actually started doing as well is kind of in fiction, but I think there's a parallel here within content marketing. A lot of good writing is basically taking two ideas and trying to smush them together and come up with a third idea that kind of reconciles them and solves the problems posed by those two. Yeah, We obviously talk about that as synthesis. That's the hard part of content marketing. And actually, you can kind of use GPT-4 as a synthesis buddy. So you can say, I'm writing something about this problem and also this problem. How might you remedy that? How might you like bring these two ideas together into something that makes sense? And it can do that. It can actually suggest some ideas for you. And they're not always brilliant. And a lot of it is nonsense. But it's like having a friend in the office with you, you know, where you can brainstorm and chuck ideas about. That's a really useful thing. And one other thing I'm really, really hot on at the moment, actually, is reformatting and repurposing content. So something like this conversation we're having now, you'd obviously you'll get a video out of it and you'll get a transcript of what we said. Yeah. And there'll be hopefully lots of useful information within that transcript, stuff that people would find beneficial. But to get that value, they have to sit down and read through thousands of words in order, and they don't necessarily know what's going to be interesting. Yeah. What I've started doing is taking transcripts from interviews, chucking them into GPT-4 and asking it to summarize and pull out the key ideas and you know, change the format of it and you know, create a database out of it and all these kinds of things. That is such a powerful use case, I think, like translocating information from one format to another and making it accessible on different platforms, different spaces. It's going to transform, it is transforming how much of content functions, I think. Yeah, no, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, summarization is actually a great tool to uh, make sure that we are giving value to people in seconds, rather than them having to weed to the tons of content to find what's really valuable to them. Uh, how about the research part? You know, that's something that I often find it interesting in the side that uh, I was testing out between ChatGPT and Bard. 
and I was trying to test out what is giving me more accurate information. And um, funny enough, yesterday I uh, ran a question on Bard asking, uh, who is Ryan Law? And uh, it said, uh, he is the CEO of my company. And I'm like, what? I got promoted. <laughs> I'm excited about that. Thank you, Bard. <laughs> <laughs> No, sometimes, you know, these can also lead to misinformation, but over a period of time, as you said, you know, you can look at it as an initial flow, a buddy who is getting the initial data for you, but it's on us to also verify and make sure that we are feeding in the right information to people. And there's a really key, crucial point you bring up there, which I think people need to be very careful about how they're conceptualizing generative AI in their heads in the first place. Because yeah. on the one hand, people are using it as like a search engine or Wikipedia, and innate within that is the assumption that it will tell the truth. And actually, the real use case is to generate things that sound like they make sense. That is the point of generative AI. Yeah. It is predicting, you know, based on whatever tokens you give it, what is likely to follow in that context. And it doesn't have to be true. There is no like validating truth-telling feedback loop built in. So it's all stuff that sounds coherent. That's the point of it. But at yeah. no point is it being vetted for accuracy. So you're totally right. You've got to be very careful. It's good for like inspiration and ideas. But if you want to tell the truth, like, yeah, don't trust it. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And as we discussed, you know, even before we uh, got this recording started, you know, I've been following animals uh, since the early days of our common friend, Jimmy Daly. And um, you started as a content marketing manager. And in five years, you have become the CMO at animals. That's not a common sight, at least in the SaaS circle that I've seen over the last 15 years. So what are your uh, you know, top two or three high-level suggestions for content marketers who are in their fourth or fifth year of their career and if they want to grow like you? Oh, very good question. I, I will always, there are lots of like um, caveats to be made in this situation, but I think one of the most important things is something you can't easily control for, and it's joining a company at the right moment in time. You yeah. know, that was the kind of like, defining infrastructure animals was on the cusp of like big growth and there was lots of opportunity to move up through it so that was you know you do have to vet the companies you join and the time when you join them but you know in terms of things i've actually done i was just a, a big old content marketing nerd like i loved solving problems and i loved learning about things that were outside of my wheelhouse so I was, you know, I tried my hardest to do a great job with my customers when I joined as a content writer, but I was also trying to solve the bigger problems the company was having. So putting together a keyword research process or, you know, helping define what content strategy looked like at animals. Yeah. And generally just seeking out hard problems, trying to make yourself useful in those areas, trying to solve the problems that your boss or your manager has. They are great ways to kind of naturally move up the organization because they get to hand off the hard stuff to you that they don't want to deal with. And when it comes time to, you know, replace somebody or hire a new role or create a new role in some cases, you can basically be the person that's right there because you've already been doing the stuff that's necessary. Yeah. So yeah, I've always I always love tinkering, solving problems. I'm really nosy. I love trying to look at other parts of the company, understand how it works. And yeah, Animals was a great company for letting me grow through that mechanism. Been very lucky. No, that's great advice. It's about uh, taking up roles and being an entrepreneur internally. And I think that definitely helps a lot. Right. And um, as an agency owner, you know, one of the common objections that I often hear from SaaS leaders is that uh, when it comes to content, they prefer to keep it in-house for the primary reason that someone who is internal is more closely aligned to the product, the mission, the culture, the story, the DNA and all of it. 
you've worked with a lot of SaaS brands that are best known for their content, like say Intercoms, Zendesk, so on and so forth. So I'm curious, how do you handle those objections there? Yeah, truthfully, a lot of the time we don't, because I think, you know, there are actually very, very valid reasons for companies to keep content in-house. And sometimes it totally is the right thing to do. I think in terms of like where agencies can add value, you know, your agency, my agency, hopefully we bring experience working with other companies and knowing generally like what can be successful. Yeah. So if a company's never done content marketing, an agency can be a great partner to work with because you get the benefit of all their learning and experience and process and you get to skip a lot of that kind of initial ramp up. Yeah. And then all the way at the other end of the spectrum, if a SaaS company is already doing good with content, but they want to uh, scale production a little bit, maybe they, they want a bit more flexibility, they don't want you know loads of additional hires, then again, an agency is great because you can kind of tack on and hopefully a good agency can operate within that existing framework. Yeah. But I do think there is that middle ground, you know, where companies care about content maybe their founders you know are really passionate about it. they've got a lot to say and they want to form their own opinion first they want to go through trial and error and do something different and unique and that yeah that could be a wonderful thing for companies to do themselves and then either work with an agency before that point or after that point no that makes a lot of sense because even back in the day when i was working with saas companies one of the first thing that i used to do when i work with agencies is that if i'm writing a particular kind of blog post say i'm doing comparison blog posts I would write out a structure saying that this is what we exactly follow. Give a couple of examples of the things that we have done. And then I would say that this is exactly we want to scale with five or six other comparisons that we want you to do. And right now we don't have the time for it. Giving them the exact thing also maintains the DNA and the story and the style of how you would do in depth rather than expecting somebody who doesn't have an idea about my industry to just go and write. And then you see that, hey, uh, if I'm working with five different agencies, my entire blog looks very different when I read each one. Yeah, totally. And that is a, yeah, it's a huge challenge, isn't it? You know, scaling, but maintaining the part of your content that people care about and people actually like and that sense of identity that is super hard yeah. thing to do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. So that brings us to the second part of the podcast, which we call the rapid fire section. It goes more like a game show. I'm going to be shooting five short questions at you. The questions might be short, but the answers need not be. You can speak whatever comes to your mind. Are you ready? Uh, born ready, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's go. Here we go. Here's question number one. The inspiration behind the name animals is probably one of the best kept secrets in the content marketing world. Spill the beans. What's the story behind it? Well, so this is the great thing. This is the genius thing. Not even I really know. And do you know what? <laughs> because there is not actually a story there. That is the thing. The thing I've learned from Walter, the person that found animals over the years, I think, you know, he named animals because it was like a memorable, slightly stupid name, didn't think too hard about the process. And it certainly proved to me that like naming a company it's not the thing that matters half as much as people <laughs> think it does, you know. But he point blank refuses to talk about that and be explicit about the actual process there. So it's become this kind of apocryphal myth. Like everyone wonders where the name came from. They're all interested in it. And that is itself like a form of marketing, I think. Yeah. You know, it can be a really boring true story, but if you kind of shroud it in a bit of mystery and a bit of mystique, it becomes much more interesting. So I think that's a good marketing lesson that I've learned from that. You know, 
it's a you can name things whatever you like there can be a really boring story behind it but don't tell people the boring story leave it up to their imagination because it'll be way more interesting yeah yeah let people come in and ask makes sense love it right so here's question number 2 between running animals marketing being the guitarist for schrodinger effect your uh, pop rock brand and uh, writing post apocalyptic novel series what gets your creativity flowing the most out of the three oh ooh, i love them all <laughs> i i think the thing i love is just making stuff i love creating things that didn't exist in the past and one of the things i've learned over the years is that there is this kind of like meta process that sits above all of these things you're basically learning the creative process so whether you are you know writing fiction or writing a blog post or creating music there's all i think the same process underneath all of those things yeah and it's yeah. a process of you know consuming interesting esoteric information thinking a lot about it riffing on it yourself questioning it and then trying to emulate it and build something new off the back of it So I love all of them. Writing is my love, you know. I that's where yeah. I feel least hindered. There's a lot I don't know about music. I still feel like I'm kind of fumbling around the edges of that, but writing is the one where I have like creative freedom. Yeah. But really it's all just creating, learning, being a massive nerd about things. So when it comes to one feeding into the other, is writing the first thing that you start with? It probably is, yeah, cuz I'm sure you probably say as well like writing is basically just it's almost the output of thought in a lot of cases. Yeah. Like I main I write notes every day. I have thousands and thousands of pages of notes on my computer and my notebook and that process is yeah it's the starting point for creativity I think because you are understanding things, you're challenging yourself, you're asking questions and you're giving your brain stuff to think about and carry into whatever you know creative pursuit you do next whether it is music or writing right yeah writing is basically the idea engine i think that fuels a lot of creativity yeah you know absolutely makes sense all right so question number 3 i think i almost know the answer for this but i'll still ask are you someone who likes to create and consume viral content which is love at first sight or someone who prefers slow burn content it is well, it's hard because i would i would love to create viral content i would love to do that i see people that you know everything they share they get like thousands and thousands of engagements and whatever i'm not very good at that i'm not the kind of person that does that i'm much more of the slow burn i find it quite hard to promote myself a lot of the time i'm more interested in sharing substantial ideas that i've spent a long time thinking about i'm a bit of a perfectionist in that regard so i would like to get better at being this viral person the kind of person that uses all the kind of distribution quirks and incentives provided by social media you know i always see people sharing like here's a 100 ai tools that you need to pay attention to <laughs> or you're going to be left in the dirt and they're getting millions of views and all this engagement and i can't ever bring myself to be that person <laughs> but it's working for them you know i kind of wish i could be that dude Yeah, I'm generally like I'm the slow burn, good, thoughtful, well-researched ideas and hopefully people will notice at some point in the future. <laughs> no, I'm 100% with you because one of the things that I've noticed with viral content is that yes, your content can get viral, but that does not actually often drive the right kind of users to your website, right kind of people, right kind of traffic, and ultimately that does not translate into business at any day. You don't want to bring thousands of people you probably want to bring those hundreds to whom you really really matter and make sense and 10% conversion on 100 is better than 0.1% for 1000 yeah i totally agree with that and i think with viral content there is this trade off 
almost between your soul and your identity and the reach <laughs> and engagement you get on a post. So the stuff that you know gets millions of page views, it generally has to be so generic and so formulaic as to tell the world nothing about who you are and what you stand for. Yeah. I've, I've talked before about the like the TAM of content marketing, the total addressable market. Yeah. And in order to reach a bunch of people, by definition, you have to share something that is very generic. For a, mil for a million people to care about something, it has to be this really high level topic like, you know, how to send better emails to your boss. Whereas the interesting problems that you solve every day, like, by, they're never going to be that popular and that viral because there are fewer people in the world solving that problem at the time. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, trade off to think about, I think. Absolutely. Right. So, question number four. Which brand in SaaS, according to you, right now, in the last one year, has best content assets? Ooh. So there's a couple um, couple of like content campaigns that I've really loved recently. I think everything Ramp puts out is fantastic. I think there were content there was headed by John Collins, formerly of Intercom, like one of the best content marketers around. They just have such a mature, thoughtful approach to modern content marketing. There's this content called the like startup founders manual or something by a company called compound so again maybe maybe fintech is this hub of innovation in content but if you want an example of like hub and spoke seo content done to perfection check out the manual by compound i'm a huge fan of that and then there's a bunch of companies that i think are embracing social media and platform native content and video really really well in terms of like triple whale and their social media content or Chili Piper, yeah. Yeah, Lavender as well, all these companies that get the value of social media and doing a great job. Yeah. We're definitely getting beyond blog posts as the sole format for content marketing these days. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Chili Piper and Lavender are absolutely killing it. I came across Ramp only through one of your posts and I found it really interesting. I think Compound, I've not heard of them. I'm definitely going to check out. So that's interesting. Oh, I love, honestly, the hub and spoke they've done. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Right, so here's the final rapid fire. What is your number one prediction for content creation in the next three to five years? Oh, one. I will limit myself and I will say... Maybe you can share more. Uh, you know, we love <laughs> learning. <laughs> well, I have, I have many, many predictions. I think maybe if I had to... The most important, I would say, is that I think it's not going to be enough for content marketing to deliver the right answer to people. It has to be the right answer from the right person. So the credibility, the authority, the experience of the people that byline and author and create content is going to matter just as much, maybe even more, as the actual information they're sharing. Because I think if you look at the kind of history of content marketing to date, you plug in a problem you have into Google. If you just get the right answer back, that was a really useful thing. Yeah. But there are so many companies creating content today. It's so saturated that the right answer is very easy to find now. And actually, the way you differentiate in that environment is by being the right person sharing that right answer. Yeah. So not some generic content marketer that's never done it, not some armchair commentator that's just rewriting what other people have done, somebody with firsthand personal experience of whatever you're writing about. So I think we'll see companies invest more in like people, subject matter experts, like people that have their own followings and audiences, and they will become a crucial, crucial part of content marketing. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I already see companies like HubSpot and Lavender doing that a lot. They invest in certain people. For example, if you want to hear about the MarTech space, you would obviously want to hear it from Scott Brinker and not anybody else. So absolutely. Yeah, um, I've been looking at his like landscapes for, yeah. oh, geez, 
15 years maybe yeah <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely awesome all five questions are out of the park that's amazing right oh well thank you yeah no it's uh, there were nice uh, softball questions they weren't too hard it was uh, stuff i like thinking about so i appreciate that awesome and for all those people who are uh, listening to us today if they would like to connect with you what's your favorite hangout place i spend a lot of time on twitter and increasingly linkedin as well i'm on there i think thinking underscore slow on those platforms that's uh, probably the best way to get hold of me amazing and uh, do you have a parting message for all the content marketers and uh, saas players out there yeah why not the generative ai trend is obviously crazy and scary and in some ways like i've been freaked out by it but i'm increasingly hopeful that actually we're on the cusp of a new world of content marketing where everyone is incentivized and expected to create interesting fun differentiated personal opinionated content i think hopefully the days of a content marketer having to slog through a 10000 word roundup of you know crm tools hopefully that day is behind us now and we get to focus on fun interesting content um so fingers crossed for that yeah no i'm certainly looking forward to those days uh no more roundups that are like you know you scroll and scroll and scroll yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> Thank you so much Ryan I absolutely enjoyed every minute of this conversation and really really appreciate you making the time here. Oh absolute pleasure chatting and hanging out for a bit y'all. Hope you have a lovely day. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs>